Welcome to The Perfect Puzzle, the podcast of Bible study where we look at the Bible and we expound upon it. I want to encourage you, if you have questions, to email me. It's in the information. My email address is in the information box about this podcast. And I want to start with a word of prayer, as we always do. Lord, we thank you that we can study your word and that we can learn about you, Father, and learn the things that you have to say to us. We also love the fact that we can take your word and apply it to our daily lives. Father, I ask you to guide me and the things that you have for me to say in this session, Lord. I ask that you open our hearts, mind, soul, spirit, and body to receive your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay. I'm going to be talking about ten shekels in a shirt. Uh, Judges chapter 17. Now, it's based on a message given in the middle of the last century by a Christian minister named Paris Reedhead. I first heard this, this teaching sometime in the mid-1980s. And I hope you get something out of it. It really has a direct bearing on things happening today. Uh, I think it may have long-term effects on how you view your Christianity. And like I said, I hope you, I'd really hope that you'll listen to it in its entirety because it is maybe longer than my normal sessions. But I think you're going to find that it's worth it. Okay? Now, just for your own edification and knowledge, I'm going to be reading Judges 17 verses 1 to 13. Then going to Judges 18 verses 1 to 6, and then going forward in Judges 18 to verses 14 through 21. You know, if you want to pause the recording now and look it up and then come back and continue listening, that's okay. You should come to this podcast with your Bible ready, though. Now, the background situation in chapter 17 is that the Amorites refused to allow the tribe of Dan any access through their territory to Jerusalem. So they crowded him up on, into Mount Ephraim. And out of this is going to come the problems that we're about to see. Now a man named Micah from the hill country of Ephraim said to his mother, The eleven hundreds of shekels the the eleven hundred shekels of silver that were taken from you and about which I heard you utter a curse, I have that silver with me. I took it. Then his mother said, The Lord bless you, my son. So when he returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, she said, I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord for my son to make a carved image and a cast idol. I will give it back to you. So he returned the silver to his mother, and she took 200 shekels of silver, gave them to a silversmith, who made them into the image and the idol. And they were put in Micah's house. Now this man Micah had a shrine. And he made an ephod and some idols and installed one of his sons as his priest. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. A young Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, who had been living within the clan of Judah, left that town in search of some other place to stay. On his way, he came to Micah's house in the hill country of Ephraim. Micah asked him, where are you from? I'm a Levite from Bethlehem, he said, and I'm looking for a place to stay. Then Micah said to him, Live with me and be my father and priest. I'll give you ten shekels of silver a year, your clothes and your food. 
So the Levite agreed to live with him, and the young man was to him like one of his sons. Then Micah installed the Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in his house. And Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will be good to me, since this Levite has become my priest. In those days Israel had no king. And in those days the tribe of the Danites was seeking a place of their own where they might settle, because they had not yet come into an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. So the Danites sent five warriors from Zorah and Eshtaol to spy out the land and explore it. These men represented all their clans. They told them, go, explore the land. The men entered the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah, where they spent the night. Now when they were near Micah's house, they recognized the voice of the young Levite, so they turned in there and asked him, who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? Why are you here? He told them what Micah had done for him and said, He has hired me and I am his priest. Then they said to him, Please inquire of God to learn whether our journey will be successful. The priest answered them, Go in peace. Your journey has the Lord's approval. Then the five men who had spied out the land of Laish said to their brothers, do you know that one of these houses has an ephod, other household gods, a carved image, and a cast idol? Now you know what to do. So they turned in there and went to the house of the young Levite at Micah's place and greeted him. The 600 Danites, armed for battle, stood at the entrance to the gate. The five men who had spied out the land went inside and took the carved image, the ephod, the other household gods, and the cast idol, while the priest and the six hundred armed men stood at the entrance to the gate. Now when these men went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the other household gods, and the cast idol, the priest said to them, What are you doing? They answered him, Be quiet, don't say a word. Come with us and be our father and priest. Isn't it better that you serve a tribe and clan in Israel as priest rather than just one man's household? Then the priest was glad. He took the ephod, the other household gods, and the carved image and went along with the people. Putting their little children, their livestock, and their possessions in front of them, they turned away and left. So, what we have here is a man named Micah who's unable to get to Jerusalem, so he decided to build a replica of the temple on his own property. He built what he thought would be an appropriate building, made the instruments of the tabernacle, the ephod included among them. Now, in case you don't know, an ephod was a type of apron that was on, worn only by the Jewish high priest. In Exodus 28, verses 6 to 8, God specifies how the ephod was to be made. So basically, it's like, a, it's like an apron that's held together by a girdle. Uh, it had two shoulder pieces which crossed the shoulders and were apparently fastened or sewed in the front. In getting dressed, the shoulder pieces were joined in the back to the two ends of the ephod. Nothing is said of the length of the garment. At the point where the shoulder pieces were joined together in the front, above the girdle, there were two golden rings sewed on to which the high priest's breastplate was attached. So, Micah made himself an ephod, a piece of clothing that's reserved only for the high priest. Then he gathered some things from the people around him, the teraphim, the household images and idols which God had forbidden Israel to have. 
And, you know, he wanted to get along as best he could with everybody, so he took a little bit of the world and a little bit of Israel, you know, that which had been revealed by God, and he mixed them up until he had something he thought might please the Lord. Then he was delighted beyond words when a wandering young preacher came along from Bethlehem down in Judah. Now, this young man didn't like the living provided for every Levite. He had wanderlust. He had an itching foot. He started off to see if he couldn't do better for himself than was being done back home. You know, being a Levite was good, but you know he thought, but he thought there should be more opportunities associated with it. And so he eventually came to the house of Micah. Micah invited him in, asked him to become the priest. And Micah made a deal with him. If you be my father and priest, I'll give you ten shekels in a shirt. Now your Bible probably says clothing in that, in that particular verse. But the people of the day wore what we would call sort of a long oversized nightgown. And I'm going to refer to it as a shirt. So... Micah gave him a suit of clothes, gave him his food and ten shekels a year in silver. Pretty good living. So he decided he'd just stay and enter into this mixture of idolatry and so on. It was going on in the house of Micah. But then the people of Dan came along. Now the people of Dan were supposed to have driven out the Amorites, but the Amorites were proving too difficult. So they wanted to find something somewhere else that's a little easier to get the people to move. So they came to Micah's house and the Levite told him, you know, just go ahead with your plans. The Lord said it's okay. Then they discovered there were people after the manner of Zidonians at Laish. They were peaceful. There was nobody protecting them. And they figured that would be a pretty good place to take some land for themselves. So when they came with the men that were sent to conquer the area, they figured since they found the land because of the young Levite, it'd be great to have his assistance. They went to the house of Micah. They took all the things Micah had made. Now some of that had cost a great deal of money because at least 200 shekels had been paid for just one piece of the furniture. They just took it all. In fact, they took the Levite. Pretty hard on Micah, but you'll notice that the young Levite was able to, to adjust himself. Amazing how flexible he was and how easily he could accommodate himself to these kind of changes when there was just a little rationalization along the way. Yeah, he could begin to see it's far more important to serve a tribe than one man's family. He could minister to so many more people. You know, the Levite could see the wisdom of this. He could justify it. You know, with no real strain of conscience, he could make the adjustment and hold his hand over his mouth while they took the furniture out of the little chapel that Micah had built. But the Levite was a wise man. Now, rather than go along either at the front or at the rear of this group of, you know, men, that might put him in place of danger. He put himself right in the middle. So if Micah sent any of his servants to get him, he was safe because he had soldiers on every side. So let me ask you, what can we call this and how can we apply it to our generation today in 2023? Would I be out of line if I were to talk to you for a little while about utilitarian religion and expedient Christianity and useful God? You know, today, the ruling philosophy is pragmatism. You understand what I mean when I say the word pragmatism? You know, to be pragmatic means if it works, it's true. If it succeeds, it's good. And the test of all practices, all principles, all so-called truths, 
all teaching is, do they work? Do you know the greatest failures of the ages, according to pragmatism, have been some of the men that God honored the most? You know, Noah was a mighty good shipbuilder, but that wasn't his main occupation. He wasn't a shipbuilder. His main occupation was preaching. And he was a terrible failure as a preacher. You know, his wife and three sons and the wives of his three sons were all he converted in 120 years. Not particularly effective, is it? You know, if you were on a mission board, you might have asked those missionaries, you might have asked him to stop long before 120 years passed. He's not being successful in what he's doing. Then if you read further in your Bible, you're going to come across a guy named by the name of Jeremiah. Pretty effective preacher, but ineffective as far as results were concerned. You know, if you were to try to measure statistically just how successful Jeremiah was, yeah, he'd get a large zero because he lost out with the people. He lost out with the king, the royalty. Even the ministerial association voted against him and wouldn't have anything to do with him. Everything he did failed. He preached for about 40 years, got not one convert. But the only one he seemed to be able to please was God. Otherwise, he's a distinct failure. Then we come to another well-known person over in the New Testament. I'm talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. He was a failure according to all our worldly standards. He never succeeded in organizing a church. Didn't set up any new denominations. He never built a school. He didn't succeed in even getting a mission board established. Never had a book printed. Never able to get any of the various criteria or instruments that are so useful for us today. Now, I'm not trying to be sarcastic at all. Because the tools we have are pretty useful. Our Lord preached for three years. He healed thousands of people. He fed thousands of people. But when it was all over, there were only 120 faithful in Jerusalem, according to Acts chapter 1, verse 15. On the day he was taken prisoner, one of his followers said, If all the others forsake you, I'm willing to die for you. Jesus looked at him and said, Peter, you don't even know your own heart. You're going to deny me three times before the cock crows this morning. Everybody else with him had already fled. By every standard of our generation or any generation, our Lord was a singular failure. So the question becomes, what is the standard of success? And by what are we going to judge our lives or our, our ministry? Because we all have a ministry. And the question you need to ask yourself is, is God an end or is he a means? You know, our generation, our day and time is prepared to honor successful choices. Logs a person get the job done, then we're going to say, hey, well done. So you got to ask yourselves at the very outset, are we going to be Levites who serve God for ten shekels in a shirt? Or are we going to serve men, perhaps in the name of God, rather than God? Now this guy, he was a Levite. He performed religious activities, but he was looking for a place that would get him some recognition, get him some acceptance, some security place where he could shine in terms of those values that were important to him. Now his whole business was serving in religious activity, so you know it had to be a religious job. He didn't have to do anything else. 
he was very happy when, you know, he came upon Micah, and Micah had a job opening. Yeah, I decided it was he was worth ten shekels in a shirt. You know, if somebody else came along and offered him more, he'd sell himself to them. But he put a value upon himself. And he figured his religious service and his activities were just a means to an end. And by the same token, God was a means to an end. Now to understand the impl implications of that fact today, we, should, we need to go back about 200 years to a conflict that attacked Christianity. And it actually, it came as an open attack on our faith in Europe under the higher critics. You know, Darwin had postulated his theory of evolution. Certain philosophers adapted it to their philosophies. Theologians even applied it to scripture. And by around 1850, there was the opening of a frontal attack upon the word of God. Now, Satan has always been insidiously attacking it. But now it's open season on the book and on the church. Voltaire over in France declared he would live to see the Bible become a relic placed only in museums. That it would be utterly destroyed by the arguments he was so forcefully presenting against it. And what was the effect of all that 200 years ago? The philosophy of the day became humanism. Now, you can define humanism as a philosophy that declares the end of all being is the happiness of man. The reason for existence is man's happiness. According to humanism, salvation is simply a matter of getting all the happiness you can get out of life. Now, you can be influenced by someone like Nietzsche, who says that the only true satisfaction in life is power, and that power is its own justification. After all, the world is a jungle. It's therefore up to man to be happy and become powerful by any means he can use. It's only in this position of ascendancy that you can be happy. Now that teaching is going to produce in due course a man named Hitler, who took the philosophy of Nietzsche as his operating principle in God, and he said of his people they were destined to rule the world. Therefore, any means that they could use to achieve that was, you know, salvation. But somebody else turns around and says, well, and then no, you know, the end of existence is happiness. But happiness doesn't come from authority over people. Happiness comes from, comes from sensual experience. So you have the type of existentialism that's given rise to the gross sensuality of our country. You know, man is essentially a glandular animal whose higher moments of ecstasy come from the exercise of his glands. Salvation is simply finding the most desirable way to gratify that part of a person. And that became the, the effect of humanism. The end of all being is the happiness of man. John Dewey, who was an American philosopher, he influenced education. He was able to persuade educators there were no absolute standards. Children shouldn't be brought to any particular standard. He said the end of education was simply to allow the child to express himself, expand on what he is, and find his happiness in being what he wants to be. So we had cultural lawlessness, when every man could do as he seemed right in his own eyes. And we had no God to rule over us. Bible had been discounted, disallowed, disproved. God had been dethroned. He didn't exist. And he had no personal relationship to individuals. You know, they taught that Jesus Christ was either a myth or just a man. That's what they taught. 
Therefore, the whole end of being was happiness. Individual would establish the standards of his happiness, and then he'd interpret it. But, you know, religion still had to exist. I mean, after all, there's so many people made their living at it, they had to find some way to justify their existence. So around 1850, the church, and it doesn't matter which flavor you were, Catholic, Protestant, or Orthodox, well, the church divided into two groups. You had one group that was the liberals who attacked the philosophy of humanism. They, I'm sorry, who accepted the philosophy of humanism. And they tried to find some relevance by saying something like this to their generation. You know, we don't know there's a heaven. We don't know there's a hell. But we do know you got to live for 70 some odd years. And we know there's a great deal of benefit from poetry, from high thoughts, noble aspirations. Therefore, it's important for you to come to church on Sunday. You know, we can read some poetry. So, you know... We can give you some little adages and axioms and rules to live by. We can't say a darn thing about, you know, what's going to happen when you die. But we'll tell you this. If you'll come every week and pay and help and stay with us, we'll put springs on your wagon and your trip will be more comfortable. We can't guarantee, guarantee anything about what's going to happen when you die. But if you come along with us, we'll make you happier while you're alive. Now that became the essence of liberalism. It meant nothing more than simply try and put a little sugar in the bitter coffee of the journey and sweeten it up for just a little while. Because that's all it could say. Now the philosophy of our culture today is humanism. The chief end of being is the happiness of man. But there's the other group of people that have taken umbrage with the liberals. Now, this group is my group. This is my people. They're the fundamentalists. And they say, oh, we believe in the inspiration of the Bible. We believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. We believe in hell. We certainly believe in heaven. We believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. But remember, the culture that we live in is humanism. And humanism says the chief end of being is the happiness of man. Now, humanism is like a miasma out of the pit. It just permeates every place. It's like an infection, an epidemic. It just goes everywhere. So it wasn't long until the fundamentalists knew each other, because they all said, we believe these things. They were men, for the most part, who had met God. But it wasn't long after having said, these are the things that establish us as fundamentalists, that you know the second generation came along, they said, oh, this is how to become a fundamentalist. you got to believe in the inspiration of the Bible, believe in the deity of Christ, believe in his death, burial, and resurrection. resurrection. Thereby, you'll become a fundamentalist. So it wasn't long until it got to the point the whole plan of salvation was to give intellectual assent to a few statements of doctrine. And a person was considered a Christian because he could say, uh-huh, at four or five places when he was asked. If he knew where to say, uh-huh, somebody would pat him on the back, shake his hand, smile broadly, and say, brother, you're saved. They'd gotten down to the place where salvation was nothing more than saying yes to a scheme or a formula. And the end of the salvation was the happiness of man, because humanism had penetrated. 
if you were to analyze fundamentalism in contrast to liberalism of a hundred years ago as it developed now I really don't want to pinpoint it in time it'd be something like this now the liberal says the end of religion is to make man happy while he's alive the fundamentalist says the end of religion is to make man happy when he dies but again you know the end of all all of religion it was you know proclaimed and taught that's the happiness of man and whereas the liberal says by social change and political order we're going to do away with slums we're going to do away with alcoholism and dope addiction and poverty and we're going to make heaven on earth and make you happy while you're alive now we don't know anything about after that we want you to be happy while you're alive and the liberals tried to do that but they had a terrifying shock when the, you know the first world war happened they were then utterly staggered by the second world war because they were getting nowhere fast and the fundamentalists are not, were now tuted in on this same wavelength of humanism until we find it said something like this fundamentalism was saying accept Jesus so you can go to heaven you don't want to go that old filthy nasty burning hell when there's a beautiful heaven up here so come to Jesus so you can go to heaven and the appeal could be as much to selfishness as a couple of men sitting in a coffee shop deciding they're going to rob a bank to get something for nothing you know there's a way that you can talk to sinners that just sounds for all the world like a plot to take a village station proprietor Saturday night earnings without working for them. humanism is I believe the most deadly and disastrous of all the philosophical stenches that's crept up through the grating over the pit of hell it has penetrated so much of our religion and it is utterly and totally opposed to Christianity unfortunately though it's seldom seen as such so we find Micah who wants to have a little chapel and he wants to have a priest and he wants to have prayer and he wants to have devotion because I know the Lord will do me good and he's selfish and it's sin and the Levite comes along and he falls right in with it because he wants ten shekels in a shirt and he wants to eat and so that he can have what he wants and Micah can have what he wants they shall out God for ten shekels in a shirt the betrayal of the ages and it's the betrayal in which we live and I don't see how God can revive it until we come back to Christianity in direct and total contrast with the stenchful humanism that's perpetrated in our generation in the name of Christ. But, I, you know, it's become so subtle it just goes everywhere. And what is it? In essence, it's this. The philosophical post postulate that the end of all being is the happiness of man. It's been sort of covered over with evangelical terms and biblical doctrine until, you know, God reigns in heaven for the happiness of man. Jesus Christ was incarnate for the happiness of man. All the angels exist for the happiness of man. Everything is for the happiness of man. And I'm telling you right now, this is unchristian. You know, didn't God intend to make man happy? Well, yes, he did. But it's a byproduct and not a primary product. You know, I'm sure you may probably have heard about a gentleman by the name of Albert Schweitzer. 
He was a good man, highly admired by the fuzzy thinkers of his day. He lived for years in Congo and East Africa. A brilliant man, philosopher, doctor, musician, and composer, but he should never be called a Christian. He never saw Christ as having any relevance to his philosophy or to his life. He was a humanist. Now, favorite sport of the Belgian government officials, who were expert marksmen, was crocodile shooting from the deck of a steamer on the Congo River. Now, they kept tally by means of a knotted string around their gun barrel, counting the number of crocodiles killed. Now, Schweitzer was rightfully appalled by their revolting sport, and he deemed it a colossal waste of life. And from that kind of experience, Schweitzer gleaned the essence of his philosophy which can be summed up in three words. Reverence for life. Crocodile life, human life, all other kinds of life. He was so convinced of reverence, reverence of life that he didn't like to sterilize his, his uh, surgery. He had the dirtiest surgery in Africa because bacteria are life and must not be destroyed. Now, George Klein, who was a veteran missionary with his South Africa general mission, he lived about 60 miles from Dr. Schweitzer's station. George was an accomplished organist, and he was expert at repairing organs. So Dr. Schweitzer asked him to come to his station to check out his malfunctioning organ that had been dominated by, donated I'm sorry, by a friend in Germany. George went over to see the good doctor, and he took the back off the organ, and to his amazement discovered a huge nest of cockroaches. And with characteristic American enthusiasm and zeal, George started trampling and stomping all over the cockroaches. He didn't want to let one of them get away. And the good doctor came running out, his hair standing straighter than it had for a long time. He got angry, said, you just stop that right now. George said, why? They're ruining your organ. Schweitzer said, that's all right. They're just being true to their nature. You can't kill them because of that. One of the boys came in and said, It's all right, Mr. Klein. He reached down very tenderly, gently picked them up, put them in a little bag, and crimped the top. Took the cockroaches out in the jungle and turned them loose. Now, here's Dr. Schweitzer, Albert Schweitzer. He believed his philosophy of reference for life. He was utterly, totally committed to it, utter, utterly consistent, even when it came to the matter of a cockroach or a microbe. Can you see that? This is humanism. It's consistency. Now I want to ask you, what is the philosophy of missions? What is the philosophy of evangelism? What is the philosophy of a Christian? 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 If you'll ask me why Christians went to Africa, well, I'll say they went primarily to improve on the justice of God. They didn't think it was right for anybody to go to hell without a chance to be saved. So they went to give poor sinners a chance to go to heaven. Now, I haven't put it in so many words, but if you'll analyze what I just said, do you know what it is? It's humanism. They were simply using the provisions of Jesus Christ as a means to improve upon human conditions of suffering and misery. And when they went to Africa, they discovered the people weren't poor, ignorant little heathen running around the woods looking for someone to tell them how to go to heaven. 
They were monsters of iniquity, living in utter and total defiance of far more knowledge of God than anyone ever dreamed they had. They deserved hell because they utterly refused to walk in the light of their conscience and the light of the law written upon their heart and the testimony of nature and the truth they knew. And when they found that out, I assure you, they were angry with God. They went out, you know, the missionaries went out there motivated by humanism. They couldn't see they were there for the Savior who endured the agonies of hell for them. So, let me summarize. Christianity says the end of all being is the glory of God. Humanism says the end of all being is the happiness of man. One is born in hell, the deification of man. The other was born into heaven, the glorification of God. One is Levite serving Micah, and the other is a heart that's unworthy, serving the living God because it's the highest honor in the universe. Let me ask you, what about you? What about you? Why did you repent? Now, I'd like to see some people repent on biblical terms again. There's a guy named George Whitfield, Whitfield who knew what it was to repent on biblical grounds. He stood on Boston Common speaking to 20,000 people. 20,000 people <coughs> without a microphone. And here's what he said. He said, listen, sinners, you're monsters. I mean, yelling it out, monsters of iniquity, you deserve hell. And the worst of, the, of your crimes is that criminals though you've been, you haven't had the good grace to see it. If you will not weep for your sins and your crimes against the holy God, George Whitefield will weep for you. And that man would put his head back and sob like a baby. Why? Was it because they were in danger of hell? No. But because they were monsters of iniquity who didn't even see their sin or care about their crimes. Do you see the difference? The difference is, here's somebody trembling because he's going to be hurt in hell. And he has no sense of the enormity of his guilt and no sense of the enormity of his crime, and no sense of his insult against deity. He's only trembling because his sin, his skin is about to be cinched. He's afraid. I submit to you that while fear is good office work in, in preparing us for grace, it's not a place to stop, because the Holy Spirit doesn't stop there. That's the reason why people cannot receive Christ and be saved until they've repented. And a person can repent only if that person has been convicted. And conviction is the work of the Holy Spirit that helps the sinner to see that he is a criminal before God, deserves all God's wrath, and if God were to send him to the lowest corner of a devil's hell forever and for ten eternities, that he deserved it all and a hundredfold more. Excuse me, because he's seen his crimes. And there was a difference in the time of John Wesley in 18th century England. Wesley was a preacher of righteousness who exalted the holiness of God in his two to three hour long open air sermons. Imagine that. We can barely sit still for an hour one day a week. 
dwelt on the law of God, the justice of God and the wisdom of his requirements for two to three hours. He would describe to sinners the enormity of their crimes and their open rebellion, their treason and anarchy. The power of God would so descend on a congregation, people were smitten to the ground, utterly unconscious. They had had a revelation of the holiness of God and had seen the enormity of their sins. The Spirit of God had penetrated their minds and hearts. This phenomena also happened in America in the 18th century at Yale University during the time of John Wesley Redfield. Outdoor evangelistic meetings were held in the amphitheater at Yale University. Policemen controlling the crowds were cautioned to delineate between the common drunk whose alcohol breath betrayed him and who was to be locked up for drunken behavior and those who had been smitten by God and were diagnosed as having Redfield's disease. Those people were to be removed to a quiet place until they returned to consciousness. Lives were transformed. If men had been drunkards, they stopped drinking. Cruel people changed. Immoral people gave up immorality. Thieves repented and returned what had been stolen. Men and women had seen the holiness of God and the enormity of their sin. The Spirit of God had driven them down into unconsciousness because of the weight of their guilt. Somehow, in the overspreading of the power of God, Sinners repented of their sin and came savingly to Christ. But there's a difference. It wasn't trying to convince a good man that he was in trouble with a bad God. It was trying to convince bad men they just deserved the wrath and anger of a good God. And the consequences were repentance that lead to faith and lead to life. Now there's only one reason. One reason for a sinner to repent. And that's because Jesus Christ deserves the worship and the adoration and the love and the obedience of his heart. Not because he'll go to heaven. If the only reason you repent was is to keep yourself out of hell, then you're just a Levite serving for ten shekels in a shirt. That's all. You're trying to serve God because he'll do you good. But a repentant heart is a heart that has seen something of the enormity of the crime of playing God and denying the just and righteous God the worship and obedience that he deserves. Now, why should a sinner repent? Because God deserves the obedience and love that this sinner has refused to give him. Not so he'll go to heaven. If the only reason he repents is so he'll go to heaven, it's nothing but trying to make a deal or a bargain with God. Why should a sinner give up all his sins? Why should he be challenged to do it? Why should he make restitution when he's coming to Christ? Because God deserves the obedience that he demands. Now, I've talked with people that have no assurance that sins are forgiven. You know, they want to feel safe before they're willing to commit themselves to Christ. And I believe the only ones whom God actually witnesses by his spirit, they are born of him are the people who come to Jesus Christ and say something like this. Lord Jesus, I'm going to obey you and love you and serve you and do what you want me to do as long as I live. Even if I go to hell at the end of the road. 
simply because you were worthy to be loved and obeyed and served, and I'm not trying to make a deal with you. You see the difference? Do you see the difference between a Levite serving for ten shekels in a shirt or a Micah building a chapel because God will do you good and someone that repents to the glory of God? Why should a person come to the cross? Why should a person embrace death with Christ? Why should a person be willing to go in identification to the cross and into the tomb and up again? I'm going to tell you why. Because it's the only way God can get glory out of a human being. If you say it's because he'll get joy or peace or blessing or success or fame, then it's nothing but a Levite serving for ten shekels in a shirt. There's only one reason for you to go to the cross. And that's because until you come to the place of union with Christ in death, you are defrauding the Son of God of the glory that he could get out of your life. For no flesh shall glory in his sight. And until you've understood the sanctifying work of God by the Holy Spirit, taking you in union with Christ in death and burial and resurrection, you have to serve in what you have. All you have is a sentence of death. Human personality, human nature, human strength, and human energy. God's not going to get any glory out of that. The reason for you to go to the cross isn't that you're going to get victory. You will get victory. It isn't that you're going to have joy. You will have joy. But the reason for you to embrace the cross and press through until you know that you can testify with Paul, I am crucified with Christ. That's Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. See, it says on what you're going to get out of it. It's what he's going to get out of you for the glory of God. And by the same token, why aren't you pressed through to know the fullness of the Holy Spirit? Why aren't you pressed through to know the fullness of Christ? I'm going to tell you why. Because the only possible way that Jesus Christ will get glory out of a life that he's redeemed with his precious blood is when he can fill that life with his presence and live it in it through his own life. The genius of our faith wasn't that we're going to go through the motions like a Levite that was hired to serve God. No, 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 no. The genius of our faith was that we come to a place where we knew we could do nothing. All we could do would be to present the vessel and say, Lord Jesus, you have to fill it. Everything that's done will have to be done by you and for you. There's so many people are trying to know the fullness of God so they can use God. That's why so many people do not enter into the fullness of Christ. They want to become a Levite with ten shekels and a shirt. They've been serving Micah, but they think if they had the power of the Holy Spirit, oh, they could serve the tribe of Dan. It's not going to work. There's only one reason for God needing you, and that's to bring you to the place where in repentance you've been pardoned by, for his glory. And in victory you've been brought to the place of death so that he might reign. And in that fullness Jesus Christ is able to live and walk in you. Your attitude must be the attitude of the Lord himself who said, I can do nothing of myself. John 8, 28. I can't speak, speak of myself. I don't make plans for myself. My only reason for being is for the glory of God and Jesus Christ. 
Now, if I were to say to you, come to be saved so you can go to heaven, be born again so you can go to heaven, come to the cross so you can have joy and victory, come for the fullness of the Spirit so you can be satisfied, I'd be falling into the trap of humanism. What I'm going to say to you is that if you're out there without Christ, you come to Jesus Christ and serve him as long as you live, whether you go to hell at the end of the way because he is worthy. And I say to you, Christian friend, come to the cross and join him in union with his death. Enter into all the meaning of death to self in order that he can have glory. I say to you, if you do not know the fullness of the Holy Spirit, come and present your body a living sacrifice. Let him fill you so that he can have the purpose for his coming fulfilled in you and get glory through your life. It's not what you're going to get out of God. It's what he's going to get out of you. You know, let's be done once and for all with utilitarian Christianity. It makes God a means instead of the glorious end that he is. We need to resign and tell Micah we're through. We're no longer going to be his priest serving for ten shekels in a shirt. Tell the tribe of Dan we're through. Come and cast ourselves at the feet of the nail-pierced Son of God and tell him we're going to obey him and love him and serve him as long as we live because he is worthy the lamb who was slain. Now, two young Moravians couple of two three hundred years ago heard of an island in the West Indies where an atheist British owner had two to three thousand slaves the owner was known for his attitude that no preacher and no clergyman is ever going to stay on this island if he's shipwrecked we'll keep him in a separate house until he has to leave and he's not ever going to talk to any of us about God I'm through with all that nonsense Two to three thousand slaves from the jungles of Africa brought to an island in the Atlantic to live and die without hearing of Christ. Two young Germans in their twenties from the Moravian sect of Protestant heard about their plight. You know what they did? They sold themselves to the British planter for the standard price for a male slave used the money they received from their sale to purchase passage to the West Indies because the miserly atheist planter would not even transport them. The Moravian community from Herrenhout came to see the two young men off who would never return again having freely sold themselves into a lifetime of slavery. As members of the slave community, they would witness as Christians to the love of God. Our family members were emotional, weeping to be sure. You know, there were questions. Was this extreme sacrifice wise? Was it necessary? As the ship slipped away with the tide and the gap widened, Houses had been cast off and were curled up on the pier. The young men saw the widening gap. They linked arms, raised their hands, and shouted across the spreading gap. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. That became the call of Moravian missions. That is the only reason for being. 
that the lamb that was slain may receive the reward of his suffering. Amen. This has been the perfect puzzle. Thank you for listening.